That's Miriam. <laughs> Here's a little story about trusting the Lord. The only survivor of a shipwreck was washed up on a small, uninhabited island. He prayed feverishly for God to rescue him. Every day, he scanned the horizon for help, but none seemed forthcoming. Exhausted, he eventually managed to build a little hut out of driftwood to protect him from the elements and to store his few possessions. One day, after scavenging for food, he arrived home to find his little hut in flames with smoke rolling up to the sky. He felt the worst thing had happened and everything was lost. He was stunned with disbelief and grief and anger. He cried out, God, how could you do this to me? Early the next day, he was awakened by the sound of a ship approaching the island. It had come to rescue him. How did you know I was here? asked the weary man of his rescuers. We saw your smoke signal, they replied. <laughs> the moral of the story, it's easy to get discouraged when things are going bad, but we shouldn't lose heart because God is at work in our lives. Even in the midst of our pain and suffering, remember that the next time your little hut seems to be burning to the ground, it just may be a smoke signal that summons the grace of God. Amen. <laughs> James Montgomery Boyce calls Romans chapter 8 the single greatest chapter in Scripture. Its richness is beyond calculating. It is monumental, moving, and emotional, and deals with no condemnation for believers in Christ. Christians live like spiritual paupers, even while we have all the incredible spiritual riches available to us in Christ. There is a saying, if you have everything but Christ, you have nothing. If you have nothing but Christ, everything. So Paul in chapter 8, the longest chapter in Romans, dispels our ignorance by teaching us about the riches we have in him. And what we have in him proves to us that we will never be judged for our sins. Paul is building a case that we will never be lost, never lose our salvation, and that one day we will be glorified with Christ. The theme of Romans 8 is absolute and final salvation of the Christian and that we can rest in this assurance. Paul's entire letter to the Romans has been explaining the meaning of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. In chapters 1 through 3, he describes the sinfulness of man, not just influenced by it, but overpowered by it. And in our own effort, man cannot escape. We are all born into bondage of pain, disease, and death. We are under condemnation, lawbreakers, sinners, and unrighteous. The world is put on trial. In chapter 4, Paul illustrates that people cannot be righteous by keeping the law, and that only through faith and trust in Christ can we be saved. 
He uses Abraham as an example of faith before circumcision and the law was given by God. Chapter 5, Questions. If I come to Christ through faith, will this faith sustain me under the pressure of life? Will it hold up and last? Is it eternal or just for now? Yes, it is eternal. When we come to Christ through faith, we are no longer at war with God. While we were enemies, God brought us to himself. So why would he discard us when we're friends? We are no longer dead in Adam. We are alive in Christ. Chapter 6 and 7 are parenthetical. They are dealing with objections that Paul anticipated would come from the Jews he was writing to. In chapter 6, Paul deals with the issue of grace. Whenever grace is brought up, someone always seems to want to pervert it, and Paul anticipates that. Why not just live in sin? Because God's grace covers everything. Why change lifestyles? God gets exalted because when I sin, God forgives me, and his grace is exalted and increases. Shouldn't we continue to sin even more so that the grace that covers our sin might increase? Paul's answer is an emphatic, may it never be. How could people who died to sin live in sin? The last verse, 6.23, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life in Christ Jesus is God's grace. In chapter 7, Paul is correcting a misunderstanding about the law of Moses. Jews were steeped in the law. When they came to Christ, they did not understand their relationship under grace with the law of Moses. Paul knew that he had to clarify this issue because it had eternal consequences. The purity of the gospel was at stake, and Paul had to deal with it. Jews thought if they were no longer under the reign of law, that would lead to sinful living because there were no rules to follow. They thought the law compelled obedience. Paul explained to them that following the law could not save them because no one could follow the law perfectly. That the law served the purpose of exposing sin sin and condemned us. But because we died in Christ when he died, the law, with its condemnation and penalties, no longer has jurisdiction over us. The first word of chapter 8 is therefore. It introduces the results of what we have learned in the first seven chapters. But specifically, it is a continuation of chapter 5, verse 21, in the New Century Version. Sin once used death to rule us, but God gave people more of his grace so that grace could rule by making people right with him. And this brings life forever through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse is monumental. Everything else flows from it. Condemnation is used exclusively in judicial settings. It refers to a verdict of guilty but mostly the, pe- the penalty that verdict demands. Paul is saying that in Christ Jesus we have no condemnation. Believers have neither sentencing nor punishment for the sins we have committed or will ever commit, only because of Christ. 
We can trust in the absolute and final salvation of the Christian. We can trust in this. How do we know? Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The for in verse 2 means because of the spirit of life in Jesus we are no longer condemned. For introduces the reason there is no condemnation for the believer. Whether we understand it or not, we are not condemned. Some teach that we can become justified by living a holy life. Don't become justified by living a holy life. We can only become justified through Christ, which is a judicial act that makes a sinner righteous before God. What is the spiritual spirit of life? The spirit has replaced the law that produced only sin and death with a new simple law that produces life. The law of faith, which is the gospel message. It is the gospel and only the gospel. It is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. We needed a perfect substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. And so Christ sacrificed himself to set us free from eternal damnation, to make us right before a holy God. We are placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Noah wasn't hanging on to the outside of the ark, was he? No. God put him inside the ark for safety, just as he puts us into Christ for safety. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The law cannot save us because in our weak and unregenerate flesh we are unable to follow the law perfectly. So God in his mercy and his grace sent his own son, not an angel, not an adopted son, but his own son in the likeness of man as an offering for our sin. The word likeness in that verse, if taken out, would change the meaning drastically and would be heresy. He was a real man. He became hungry tired, grief-stricken, angry, but he was totally without sin. He did not come through Adam, and so sin did not pass to him. He came in our likeness, but was not like us. He had to be a real man in order to be our substitute and save us. He had to be perfect in order to save us, and he was. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, again, the century version. Since these children are people with physical bodies, Jesus himself became like him. He did this so that by dying, he could destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and free those who are like slaves all their lives because of their fear of death. Clearly, it is not angels that Jesus helps, but the people who are from Abraham, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, so he could be their merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Then Jesus could die in their place to take away their sins. And now he can help those who are tempted, because he himself suffered and was tempted. Verse 4. So that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The goal of eternal salvation is not just to save us, but to make us holy, that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, to give us righteousness through Christ so we can stand in God's favor. We don't throw away the law. We are just not condemned by the law. We are to practice the law in our own lives, not because we want to be saved, but because we love God. When we do sin, we should never again let Satan convince us we are condemned. We ought to feel ashamed and sorrowful and repent, but we are never condemned. An unbeliever sins against the law. A believer, when sinning, sins against love, not law. It's a family affair when we sin and breaks the heart of him who loves us. All our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And as a judge, God forgives them. But as our Father recognizes that fellowship with him can be broken when we sin, and when we repent, fellowship is restored. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The requirement of the moral law of God is walking in perfection in thoughts, words, and deeds in our flesh that is impossible. But God has given us the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to follow the law. That doesn't make us sinless, but the general direction of our lives will be obedient to God and the law. We desire to do what is right. We desire to obey. The Holy Spirit is mentioned only once in chapters 1 through 7, and nearly 20 times in chapter 8. In verses 2 and 3, he frees us from sin and death, and in verse 4, he enables us to fulfill God's law by walking in the Spirit, not flesh. God's truth now governs our lives. That is supernatural, not human. In our flesh, we do what we want us to do. In the Spirit, we do what God wants to do. The Spirit literally inhabits Christians. Our bodies are his home. 2 Timothy 1.14, century version. Protect the truth that you were given. Protect it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the person of the Holy Spirit are all three living within our bodies. They are the equality of the Holy Trinity. John 14.23 John answered and said to him, excuse me, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Romans began by telling us we were under the wrath of God, suppressing the truth, rejecting the truth, living out our own will, unable and undesirous to obey God. We went from that to God taking up residency in us, in our frail bodies, to help us obey him. That is a truth to rejoice in. And that is true of every Christian. How incredible is that? And if that doesn't give us assurance that we belong to him, 
what will. Verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. John MacArthur, in his notes, says this about the mindset. The Greek verb refers to a basic orientation of the mind, a mindset that includes one's affections, mental processes, and will. Paul's point is that unbelievers' basic disposition is to satisfy the cravings of their unredeemed flesh, wanting to please themselves. However, Christians walk in a lifestyle characterized by wanting to please God. Verses 6 through 8. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind set on the flesh is spiritually dead. In the moral sense, that is man's unredeemed humanness. The unredeemed are hostile toward God, regardless of how outwardly religious or moral they may appear. Even the good deeds they perform are produced from a heart in rebellion to God and cannot please him. Verses 5 through 13 clarifies why only those in the spirit can fulfill obedience to the law. This is important because Christians constantly set standards for non-Christians that they cannot possibly keep. It is important for us to understand who we are in Christ, to obey the word of God, which unbelievers are incapable of doing. In contrast, the mindset on the, on the spirit is life and peace. Every Christian with their mindset on the spirit has life and peace with God. We are no longer at war with him. Verses 9 through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul was concentrating on non-Christians. Now he moves to Christians. Since the Spirit lives in us, we are changed. We are new creatures in Christ. That happens immediately when we accept Christ as our Savior. We are God's children. We belong to Christ. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit indwelling them, they do not belong to Christ and are not a child of God. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and go. That's why David in the Psalms said, Take not your spirit from me. The Spirit in us is permanent. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is God's promise to us, his seal of assurance, a sign of ownership. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So it is with you, when you heard the true teaching, the good news about your salvation, you believed in Christ, 
And in Christ, God put his special mark of ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit that he had promised. That Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will receive what God promised for his people until God gives full freedom to those who are his to bring praise to God's glory. Our bodies that house the Holy Spirit are still subject to death because our bodies are still corrupt and unredeemed. And even though our bodies are dead because of sin, if God's spirit indwells us, our own spirit is alive because Christ's righteousness has been given to us. And because of Christ's righteousness indwelling us, one day he will give life to bodies not subject to death, our glorified bodies living with God in heaven. We can rest assured that our bodies and our spirit both will be saved. Verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if in the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then, what is to be our conduct? Based on the fact that we are in the spirit, we are under obligation to the spirit, not to the flesh, which has gotten us into all kinds of trouble anyway. If we are unbelievers living in the flesh, we die for all eternity. If we live by the Spirit, believers, we die to flesh and will live for all eternity. We have the strength to say no to sin. If we don't say no, it's because we don't want to, but we are able to. John MacArthur says this, Scripture offers believers many helps for avoiding and killing sin in their lives. First, it is imperative to recognize the presence of sin in our flesh. Sin can become a powerful and destructive force in a believer's life if it is not recognized and put to death. Our remaining humanness is constantly ready to drag us back into the sinful ways of our life before Christ. Knowing that truth well, Peter admonishes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's 1 Peter 2.11. If Christians did not live in constant danger from sin, such advice would be pointless. A second way for believers to kill sin in their lives is to have a heart fixed on God. When we know and obey God's word, we are building up both our defenses and offenses against sin. A third way is to meditate on God's word. David in Psalm 119.11, Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. A fourth way to destroy sin in our lives is to commune regularly with God in prayer. Peter calls us to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That's 1 Peter 4.7. Fifth way is to practice obedience to God, doing his will and his will alone in all the small issues of life can be training in habits that will hold up in the severe times of temptations. Being controlled by God's Spirit comes from being obedient to His Word. The Spirit-filled life does not come through mystical or ecstatic experiences, but from studying and submitting oneself to Scripture. 
as a believer faithfully and submissively saturates his mind and heart with God's truth, his spirit-controlled behavior will follow as sure as night follows day. When we are filled with God's truth and led by his spirit, even our involuntary reactions, those that happen when we don't have time to consciously decide what to say or do, will be godly. Verses 14 and 15. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We have been adopted by God as his children, and the confirmation of that is that we have the Spirit indwelling us and leading us. If we have victory over sin and see sin, and desire to, to sin diminishing in our lives, we can have assurance we are God's children because only the presence of the Spirit can bring victory over sin. When we begin to understand biblical truths that have long puzzled us, when we experience God's convicting our consciences, when we grieve for the Lord's sake when we sin, we have assurance we are God's children because only the indwelling spirit can give us that understanding, conviction, and godly sorrow. When Paul speaks about adoption, he's using the Roman model in practice at the time he wrote this letter. The father of a household had all power. For any reason, he could choose to adopt a son of any age, even 50, for the purpose of giving them his name and inheritance, whether he had natural children or not. Seven people had to witness the transaction, and no one could undo the adoption. Unsaved, we feared death all our lives. We were slaves to that fear. Unsaved, Jews were in bondage to the law and their rules and regulations. But we no longer have the spirit of slavery. We have received the spirit of adoption. In the spirit of adoption, we are able to call out God, Abba, Father, because he is our Father. Abba is an Aramaic term used even today, meaning Papa, or Dad, or Daddy. It's a very intimate term of endearment. Verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Just as seven people had to witness a Roman adoption, the Holy Spirit is our witness. He testifies that we have been adopted into God's family, and no one can undo our adoption. He is proof we have been adopted. And because we are adopted into God's family, we are fellow heirs with God's own Son, Jesus Christ. All that God has one day will be ours in glory we will receive the same inheritance as Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly world. If we suffer with him does not mean <coughs> we will only receive our inheritance if we are beaten or become martyrs or are completely ostracized from our society. If here means because or inasmuch. <clears throat> the present world, under the reign of Satan, despises the one true God and Christians. We've been seeing more and more persecutions of Christians around the world these days. 
Even in our own country, our Christian inheritance is being undermined. And I wouldn't be surprised if there comes a day when Christians are persecuted here for being haters and intolerant. It's almost inevitable that whether persecution comes in the form of mere verbal abuse at one extreme or martyrdom at the other extreme, no believer is exempt from the possibility of paying a price for his faith. When we suffer because of our faith, we can take that as proof we truly belong to Christ. We can be assured we will be glorified with him. For those of us who have the assurance of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we are indeed children of God and belong to him, never again let Satan take that assurance from you. You may feel separated from God from time to time, but that's not because he's moved away from you. Go to him in prayer and confess and envelop yourself in his word. He loves us. We are his children. He is Abba, Father, Daddy, Dad. If there is anyone here who does not have the assurance of the indwelling Holy Spirit, please trust Christ. Go to him, honestly confess your sins and pray for forgiveness, understanding that only he can cleanse you of them. Only he can make you righteous before a holy God. Let's pray. What incredible truths you have given us in this chapter of Scripture, your Scripture, Father. How blessed we are. Lord, help us to understand the depth and the richness of your love and your grace and your mercy to us. We were once sinners and your enemy. Lord, I would just pray for each and every one of us, Father, that we in our lives would strive to die to our flesh, to become holy and more and more like Christ, your beloved Son, that the desire in our hearts, Lord, would be to obey you, and that we would be grateful and have a deep understanding of the riches you have given us and all the inheritance that we have in you, Father. Praise you in your holy name and we give you such gratitude and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.